Hello, and welcome to the Library Cafe, a weekly program about research and the formation and circulation of knowledge. I'm very delighted to have as a return guest on the show today, the author, Lori Lyle. Lori is here to talk about her new book just out yesterday, actually, entitled Word for Word, A Writer's Life, published by Artemis Editions. Welcome back, Lori. Thank you. So the book is already getting lots of attention, even though it's only been out a day now. Well, yes, I'm really very thrilled that Book Life, which is an arm of Publishers Weekly, named it as an editor's pick, uh-huh. which means it's a book of outstanding quality. Uh-huh. So I was very thrilled, and I was thrilled to see the page where this was mentioned in this week's Publishers Weekly. That's wonderful. Yeah. I know from my public librarian friends that Publishers Weekly is given a lot of attention when public librarians go to look for material for their readers. So, uh, um, yeah. Well, I was very, very pleased. And then uh, Jane Friedman, who is a pretty well-known publishing consultant, decided to excerpt a large portion of the last chapter, which describes my deciding to write this memoir uh-huh. instead of another biography. And this was very flattering. And uh-huh. I was very glad that she did this. You are a writer and an accomplished biographer, and this book is very much the story about you becoming a writer, as you indicate with your subtitle, Writer's Life, an artist of a kind, certainly. And we've talked on the show over the past year about two of your classic biographies, one of the artists, Georgia O'Keeffe, and then uh, your second biography of Louise Nevelson. The obvious first question is, you know, what made you decide to turn the spotlight on Lori Lyle, the artist, this time? Well... There are several answers. First of all, I thought it was only fair if I wrote about O'Keefe and Nevelson that I should turn the spotlight on myself (laughs) at some point. But also, I think the most important reason has to do with, you know, you get to a certain point in life, a certain age in life where you want to look back Uh and you want to make sense of what you've done and where you've gone and how you have arrived at where you are. Uh-huh. It's been called by several people a period of deepened inward gaze. Uh-huh. It's, it's a natural place that you arrive maybe when you're in your last third of your life. Uh-huh. It felt like a very natural time to open up my journals and start reading them again and try to connect the dots uh-huh. and answer questions and find meaning. I had a bit of an experience like that in that I was interviewed myself on the show once. I mean, I mean, always interviewing other authors by a friend of mine, Millie Budney, and she sent me, me the questions ahead of time. It occurred to me that I was talking mostly about my life. She was asking me about, about my education, that kind of thing, and my professional training. And I had never done that sort of reflection before in terms of it being systematic and autobiographical. And it was really kind of a revelation. And I think you're right. It does have a bit to do with your time of life. So I found only to say myself seeing patterns that I had never thought of before, you know, when I started answering these questions she was asking me. So very interesting. Yeah, I found it quite interesting, full of revelations. Uh I understood people better who had had very powerful influences on me as a child. Uh Um, There was no way at the time I could have understood them, but now I can. And so you go through a process of understanding leading to forgiveness Uh and and maybe some old anger sort of vanishing. Mm -hmm. It it was really quite a profound experience. That's really interesting. I can see it being therapeutic in some way, writing a memoir. Clarifying, yeah. yeah. You let things go. You you go deep, uh-huh. and then you let things go, and they're uh-huh. gone. <laughs> and you're a little freer. Yeah, that's that's great. It's just it's just great. So, and we're all getting older. I mean, the whole society's getting older. You know, yes. you you and I aren't unusual at our time of life. Not as though we're old geezers yet, but I'm older than I ever imagined myself getting. So, yeah, we all I think we all are. <laughs> I do remember the days when 30 seemed old. So so I suppose the second question then, were you as much of an adventure to yourself writing about yourself as were O'Keefe and Nevelson? I mean, did those biographies inform your approach to thinking about your own life? And were you as interested in yourself as you were interested in those very interesting individuals? Well, yes. I mean, first of all, I found I learned from writing the biographies how to 
investigate a life. And then um, when I decided to focus on my own life, I found many surprises. There was an element that I had to deal with that I never dealt with in the biographies, and that was marrying. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole, uh-huh. <laughs> a whole head and heart full of memory was like another whole part of this process that I had to deal with. It's very complicated. Mm-hmm. Memory is elusive too. So mm-hmm. you had to try to figure out what was true and what was remembered inaccurately. And so the journals were a great help. Yeah, uh, you, you were a great journal keeper and you had lots of archives to work from, yes? Oh, uh, yes. Because you were hoping to be a writer and you know, writing journals is one great way to practice, I tell my students in my writing seminars. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. And even as after I became a published writer, I kept the journal writing going. I mean, it was sort of a, an impressionistic way to, to write. Sometimes mm-hmm. to start a day of difficult writing, you just write something that's in your heart or that you just need to get off your chest. Mm-hmm. And it gets the words flowing. So when you go back and read your journals, do you find yourself agreeing with your assessment of what was going on in your life at the time? Or do you find times when you say to yourself, boy, this girl was dumb, you know, she just didn't well, know what was happening. You have many reactions. And mm-hmm. yes, at times I thought she was, I, I was just wanted to shake her. <laughs> I wanted to say, uh-huh. can't you see what's going on? You know, make a decision, yeah. move, get out of this, difficult situation but i also realized she was young this Uh person this other person who turned out to be me Uh and she was inexperienced and she didn't have a lot of confidence Mm -hmm. when she was young and she didn't have a lot of information and so i had mixed feelings of of compassion and impatience You know, when you said, as you get older, you move to a sort of place of forgiveness, I suppose one of the people you have to forgive in your past is you, right? Yes. So, yeah, so. That was very important, and particularly mm-hmm. when I finished, and I realized that now it was time to publish it. <laughs> uh-huh. I really had to decide by publishing something that revealed you know, my faults and my failures, mm-hmm. as well as my successes and my joys, that I had to... I had to forgive myself. I mean, in order to face readers, you know, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that brings me to the question, which interests me an awful lot about your book here. And it kept popping up as I was reading it. I keep thinking it must be strange to relate to yourself in both a deeply subjective and a deeply objective way at once in writing an autobiography or a memoir. I mean, what is more transcendent and penetrating, for instance, than a writer's mind and imagination or more objective and vulnerable than to be the focus of that penetration, the systematic focus. And I kept thinking it must be a strange way to spend a great deal of time writing like this. So did you have that experience? Did you think of yourself as the writer more than as the object of your writing? Or did you think of yourself more <laughs> as an object? Uh, you know? Well, what you picked up on, it was a very complex uh-huh. experience because you were all these things at the same time. I mean, there was this younger voice, this younger, inexperienced, raw voice that I was dealing with in the journals. And then an uh, older, more mature voice where I could evaluate everything better. And it was an interplay between the two. Mm-hmm. I felt it was a strange way to, to spend years. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it wasn't always very comfortable. Uh-huh either but somehow I was riveted by my determination to understand better to understand mm-hmm. on a different level everything that had happened and it was a, it was a intense curiosity uh-huh. um, and it, it wasn't just a personal thing I mean because I, I realized a lot of people had similar experiences you know with love with divorce with whatever and it sometimes it just seemed like it was a human, human Mm -hmm. issues that many people share. Yeah. That's one of the things that makes the book so interesting is that your experiences, some of them are rather ordinary, you know, difficult decisions about spouses, that kind of thing, but they're experiences everybody has. So it makes the book like really interesting, you know, across the board, I think. Well, you feel at the time that this is a huge monumental experience that you're going through and it is for you because it you know can change the direction of your life 
your one little life. But it's true. A lot of people have these moments of decision where your life could go one way or another. So I wonder if the difference between a memoir and an autobiography, if you've thought about this, has to do with the subject-object thing. With a memoir, it seems to me, uh, you're much more the subject, uh, reminiscing and writing about who you think you are. And with the autobiography, you're treating yourself as though you treat George O'Keefe or, or Nevelson, maybe. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I think the memoir is more subjective, uh-huh. where you deal with what memory means uh-huh. as much as what uh-huh. actually happened. Yeah, you always did call this when you were telling me about it earlier, our last interview, when you talked about it, you called it a memoir that you were working on, not an autobiography. So. You no, know, I, I don't know that people write autobiographies so much uh-huh. anymore. I yeah. mean, they're more like historical documents. Yeah. I don't see that word used very much when books are announced. I mean, maybe the closest thing to an autobiography would be something a president writes. About yeah, I'm thinking Churchill. Yeah, it's less personal and more yeah. about decisions that were made, political decisions. So with this sort of penetrating mind looking at itself, did you have to overcome a sort of sense of modesty or shame in being the object of this kind of focus? And then on the other side, you know, what about the modesty on the subject side, where you don't want to appear as though you're too self-involved or narcissistic? Well, I decided that writing a memoir was not narcissistic. Uh Uh (laughs) It was Uh self-absorbed. Yes, self-absorbed. But that's different. It was not narcissistic because I was looking at my vulnerabilities. Uh And Uh that's not very easy to do if you're doing it honestly. I was looking at everything with a very direct, very hard glance. And yes, definitely self-absorbed for a while, but not egotistical because the ego takes a certain amount of battering so do you have to then give up your modesty do you have to give up your modesty to be an object of this kind of scrutiny even if somebody well, else modesty, is already, yeah well privacy yes yeah privacy yeah yeah you definitely it's a giving up of privacy and that's definitely un, a little uncomfortable because you have no idea how people are going to react so but, uh, but you know i have to make one other point when i started to do this my feeling was that I'm doing this for myself. I'm not writing this for other people. I'm writing this for myself Uh, uh because I need to know. And even though, you know, I was a published writer and somewhere in the back of my mind, I thought, well, I guess eventually I'm going to have to publish this. My feeling was, this is something I need to know for myself. And so modesty didn't really come into it at that point. It didn't feel unimportant to understand one's own life. It felt important. So did part of you, the objective side, resist what you were doing at all, in a sense? And I'm thinking, with your two classic biographies, with O'Keefe and Nevelson, those were very difficult people to get to know by anybody's standards. I got that sense from your biographies very much. Both O'Keefe and Nevelson are mysteries, essentially, who were pretty successful at resisting penetration by anyone, far more than the average person. They were, I think, to some extent, constructing themselves as mysteries. So is that the same with you, I wonder, you know, were you a hard person to get to know looking over your life objectively? I mean, did you resist having somebody yourself even get to know this mysterious person that you are? No, I wanted to know. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to know for myself. And I'm not the kind of person who builds facades or fantasies or false stories. And I felt that because I had memory working for me, besides the journals and the letters Uh that I had a lot more tools than Uh I had with O'Keefe and Nevelson. And yes, there is a certain amount of fear, I guess, about Uh going public. It's either bravery or recklessness. I'm not really sure which it is. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know. And on one level, I don't care because, you know, writing this was very important to me personally. Well, you did start out as a journalist, so you're used to treating the world objectively, yes? I mean, that comes through in your writing here. Um, Yeah. Well, I I was trying to get the facts straight, and the feelings, that was more difficult. Yeah. The facts were pretty easy, as far as I could, you know, tell. And I did have my sister read the early part, and she basically (laughs) had nothing to correct. Mm -hmm. So I guess I remembered pretty accurately the things that preceded the journal, I didn't start the journal 
really till I was in college. Yeah. And so there was a whole 20 years of having to re remember, having to yeah. rely on memory. Yeah, those passages, I have to say, were very interesting, starting out with the debutante ball and, the, and, the, and, and, and your childhood and that rather privileged existence you were living. Um, well, it was privileged and not privileged yeah. at the same time, yeah, for reasons yeah. I explained. So anyway, I really love the title of the book, Word for Word, which is a bit of an enigma in itself. So I wonder why it is you chose it as a title? Well, it's a really good question, and I don't know that I can answer it because <laughs> it popped into my mind, this phrase popped into my mind, and I really couldn't shake it. And I thought, well, I really have to come up with some other options. And I mm -hmm. tried, and I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and I just couldn't shake this title. And I think basically because I'm, you know, I'm writing about my life as a writer, so mm -hmm. words, it's a, yeah. it's a life built on words. And it has a certain literal connotation, which mm -hmm. you can interpret as truthfulness. I uh -huh. wanted to get the literal truth as much as I could yeah. about what had happened. Yeah, again, with a journalist, I assume when you're quoting someone, you want to quote them word for word. Yes, ideally. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah. And I wanted to get the story straight. Well, there is a sense of desire for truth that runs through the whole book, actually. It really comes through this kind of regard that you have for the truth of who you are. I mean, um, whatever is happening to you in terms of, you know, you're describing your past, one gets a sense that the ideal here is truth, in a sense. And that's a writerly value if ever there was one, isn't it? So... Yes. Well, it was a desire to be myself. Uh -huh. yeah. I had from a very early age when I decided that I was going to keep my birth name uh -huh. instead of take my uh, stepfather's name. Uh -huh. And uh, at five years old, it was, it, uh -huh. it just seemed more genuine, more truthful and very important just to keep, keep that name. So I keep thinking of what you told me earlier about your having read biographies of famous women from the time you were a small child, but you weren't either Amelia Earhart or Jane Addams <laughs> or, or, or Georgia O'Keeffe. And so, you know, it doesn't mean to be a rude question, but it, and it is a question one would ask. Why would a person want to read about your life, do you think, in, in a sense? I mean, well, um, you know, I never really asked myself that question because I was uh, writing I was writing the book for myself. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I wasn't writing it for yeah. other people. <laughs> well, did your publisher ask you that question somewhere along the line? Why would I, a reader be interested in you I or did you just read the book? Yeah, rude friends uh -huh. who asked me that. Okay. And, <laughs> and I thought, well, I don't really think a writer needs friends like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah well everyone's interesting and it's a very, an extremely interesting book i have to say i mean a, a memoir i think the accolades on the back of the book do it justice in a sense that this is a sort of memoir but to make people want to run out and do the memoir <laughs> you know so so did you have a specific audience beside yourself in mind at all when you wrote the well, book well yes i yeah. mean i thought this book might be helpful to other writers uh -huh. young writers maybe women writers who are struggling with some of the same decisions that, that I was struggling with. I mean, mothering, writing, uh -huh. which do you do? Do you do them both at the same time? You do them in sequence. Do you do one or the other? I mean, it was, it was a very complicated passage in my thirties mm -hmm. when I, I had to deal with these issues. And I think women are still dealing with them mm -hmm. in many cases. Yeah. I mean, writing is very demanding of your attention. And I don't know how you can do too many other things well if you're really devoting yourself to writing. Well, that's what it means to be an artist, I think. Yeah. Um, other people have to accommodate themselves to you, to your art, to your work. I mean, that was the case with Nevelson and certainly with O'Keefe and Stieglitz. Yeah, Edward Albee said, it's not the artist who's selfish, it's the art that's selfish. Uh -huh. So. Uh -huh. There's some truth to that, I think. Are there lessons then to be learned by other people by reading the book, do you think? By other women, especially, I'm thinking. Uh, making well, I hope choices. so. Yeah. I hope people can see the places where I was too fearful or too cautious and I should have trusted myself more and made different decisions. I think they could perhaps also understand how, particularly after I, I moved to Sharon, this little town in Connecticut, and developed a writing rhythm, how it worked very well for me, particularly having a garden at the same time. <laughs> and how gardening and writing would just play off each other and 
make each other easier, uh-huh. make each other better. Another thing about these decisions you lead us through, which make the book interesting, is that the kinds of decisions you are confronted with tell us a lot about you, the things that motivate you or pull you in various directions, which are a way of your telling us and yourself, I guess, who you are, whatever you decide. Well, I mean, I write about major decisions I made. Mm-hmm. One was whether to go into the Peace Corps or not when I got out of college. And it was a decision not to, that I even today, I still wonder if it was the right decision. Uh-huh. Because I was assigned to Guatemala. Uh-huh. And when I finally went to Guatemala, maybe five years later, I loved it. I was intrigued by the people, by the landscape. And it really made me wonder about that decision. Mm-hmm. There was another major decision that I wrestled with at a young age was whether to be a social worker or a writer. Because I, as a teenager, I had gone to programs that the Quakers had. Uh-huh help underprivileged children and other things. And I really wanted to be a helpful kind of person. And so what should I do? You know, what, what career path? And I finally decided the more private, mm-hmm. the more private path of being a writer. Uh-huh. Yeah. Even as a journalist, it somehow seemed more private um, I got a sense that the Quakers had a profound effect on you, though, because, you know, all of us were in a moral quandary in those years, in the uh, you know, late 60s with the war going on and, and decisions had to be made. And I got a sense that the Quakers really grounded you in a really good way in terms of your idea of your relationship to other people. Well, yes. I was going to a girls' boarding school uh-huh. <laughs> during those years. Yeah. And so in the summers, when I went to these work camps with guys... It was such a relief. It's, it was like normal life. And I made some really good friendships and some great experiences. And it, it was really important. And then I, of course, I admire the values. Of, mm-hmm. I mean, I was very much into the civil rights movement and all these other things. Not too many people in my school were. But here, here I was among people who, who shared these values. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you make the connection that, you know, because you are starting out in those early chapters in a very traditional world, and it's an old world, it's the world of the old 13 colonies, it's Rhode Island, that you make this connection between this kind of liberality that you found in the Quakers and this kind of earlier New England world of morality and liberal values and what it means to be an American in, a, in that kind of deep sense. Yeah. Yes, it was very important for me to go back to Providence as a reporter uh-huh. and get to know the city in a completely different way than I knew growing uh-huh. up and and then to understand my family's place in it and to think about my family and the values that I liked, the values I didn't like. And it was very grounding to know what to accept and what not to accept and then to move on. It helped me form an identity uh-huh. at, at a young age. I have to say, I found the book really fascinating to read, in part because it's so well-written, and it's really a page-turner. I mean, you can sit down and read it in in one go. You know, you're drawn to do that. But also, it has just a wonderful literary quality, and I really get a sense of you in it. And I get a sense of you in all of your books, of this kind of a consciousness that is expanding over the course of the book as you hover over it, in a way, as a writer. And when I consider this particular book as a whole, I get this feeling in spades that the story of Lori Lyle is awakening you to something that is very exciting and wise as much as the stories of O'Keefe and Nevelson ever did. You know, with those subjects, it was for me the force and virtue of their passion for their work and for the art itself that seemed to motivate this growth in you actually writing about them. And I get that sense in here also. So I suppose the question is, uh, in this book, uh, is there something like this happening? I mean, is your motivating force the sort of sun that causes whatever's happening to grow here? Your love of language and words, you know, is it your writerly identity or, or is it life itself or nature, which you bring in in the end? Or I could just ask the old interview question, you know, where do you get your inspiration? <laughs> so that's a long-winded question, I have to say, but... Um, Well, I think I was looking for answers. Uh And, you know, when you write a book, you write draft after draft. You don't sit down and write Uh the book. And so each time I went through, I could sense that I I was getting 
a greater degree of understanding of what mm-hmm. had happened. And my writing was getting better at, mm-hmm. with every draft, which is, you know, a very natural, normal way writers write. The things that are less important, you get rid of and you mm-hmm. write more about the things that become important. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, my understanding really uh, increased. And I think you'll see that in the early chapters, it's pretty much it's pretty much factual material. And then by the end, it's it's much more. Yeah, um, I got a sense of you as the author, in it, yeah, toward the end, especially. Yeah, you know. yeah it, more philosophical. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, interesting. So I really like the way the book moves from a sort of journalistic concreteness in the beginning, especially relaying, you know, the day-to-day foibles and decisions that engage you to a sense of clarity and peace and wisdom, frankly, at the end that we've talked about. And can you talk about the mood at the end of the book there, which I associate with your gardening and your house in Sharon and your third and very happy marriage. And uh, also, especially to your reconnection with your parents and, and especially your mother in that toward the end there. I mean, the book really does shift in a sense. Yeah. Well, I shifted. Uh-huh. <laughs> I changed. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, I was growing and I uh-huh. resolved a lot of, a lot of issues when I got a garden in Sharon in my forties, I was able to relate to my mother better, who was a, very passionate and gifted gardener who lived in the country. I wasn't able to share my life with her very much when I lived in New York. Yeah. But then we became very close again and and extremely close in the last year and a half of her life when I was taking care of her. Mm. And that was a very profound experience. Mm. And then marriage to my present husband, an artist, occurred when I was around 50. And it really... It enabled me to grow tremendously, living with a person who was so accepting and loving and so creative himself Mm -hmm. (laughs) in his own work. And so we really understood each other's need to create and gave each other the permission we needed to do it. And just a lot of things fell into place. Mm -hmm. Uh, Living in the country, in a little town, it just, a lot of things, I was able to mature It comes through very strongly. So instead of us just talking about your book and my telling what a wonderful writer you are, perhaps this would be a good place for you to read from the book, if you don't mind. So the audience can get an idea word for word, so to speak, of what the book is like. Okay. This is a part where I describe returning to New Mexico, which I love and learned to love when I was working on the O'Keefe biography. And this was years later. And it was a hiking trip. On the last day, a van took us north towards the Cumbrus Pass on the Continental Divide Trail in the high mountains of southern Colorado. At an altitude of more than 10,000 feet, a wild wind was blowing. It was like an elemental force, as if caused by the spinning of the earth itself as the orb moved through endless black space. It felt as if our little band of six or eight was moving across the top of the world. Walking single file against the wall of wind in the thin air made my lungs pump hard and my heart beat rapidly. It surprised me that I was the slowest and ended up last in line since I hiked so much in Connecticut until I realized that at the age of 66, I was a decade or two older than most of the others. Still, My steps were springy because of the elevation as well as my exhilaration at being enveloped by all the bright moving air. After a few hours, we settled down with our picnics in a patch of warm sunlight on a sloping meadow among the waving grasses and nodding alpine wildflowers while puffy clouds raced low overhead and created sudden dark shadows. I felt as if I could reach up and touch one of their bulbous cottony bottoms. A dark forest encircled us, where even the tops of towering evergreens were swaying in the unrelenting gale, and where earlier winds had ripped bark off trunks and blown large limbs to the ground. Everything around me was in rapid, unrelenting motion, except for the patch of ground I was sitting on. After eating my sandwich and apple, I took a pad and ballpoint pen from my backpack and began to compose a letter to my younger self. Looking back, 
I thanked her for decisions she had made over the years that led me to this thrilling hike. Then I rebuked her a little for times of wordlessness and loving the wrong men too long, but liked the way she had never given up on the written word, feeling grateful for material that, like a dream, had led her towards an exciting issue or idea to explore. I had always enjoyed the ordering of thoughts, the beauty of language, the daringness of insights. Arranging and rearranging words on the page until they were right had taken time, a lot of time over the years. But so had gardening, and I ruefully recognized that without a garden, I might have written more, but I would not have been as happy. It was the quiet things, writing, gardening, reading, walking, that allowed my mind to follow the thread of a thought, and I had enjoyed them all, realizing that I relished written words on paper more than verbal ones moving through the air. Words were only signposts, however, black and white symbols, and they required research, perception, and arrangement to give them resonance. It was not entirely evident to me whether I had wanted to be a writer because of an introverted nature or if the writing had demanded introspection. Most likely, it was a little of both. Beautiful, very poetic. It has the memoir itself in it in microcosm in a way, doesn't it? So, yeah. And it, it also reflects back on that earlier experience you had of doing the O'Keefe biography um, yes. nicely. So it telescopes back and forth in time. For me, when I read it, that's what I felt. So, yeah, wonderful. Something to entice possible readers out there. I really like the way you end the book and those last chapters, you know, the mood shifts. But on the other hand, I don't want to give the earlier parts of the book short shrift. Although because your life was a rocky one a bit, like all our lives are, I suppose, often filled with difficult decisions and choices to be made. And it's the life we all live in some way, I think. You do tell it with a sort of existential drama. And maybe this has something to do in hindsight with the fact that ordinary lives are interesting, you know, or, or maybe it has to do with the fact that you were living through history there. Are you talking about my early years in Providence? Or are you uh, talking no, about, I'm talking about in, New York? in New York? Yeah, in New York, oh, where okay. you're making all these life-changing decisions, it seemed like every day. And, you know, the little review I wrote, it seemed to me you were walking on a knife edge, you know, where you were making decisions all the time and leading your readers by the hand along this knife edge with you. All of us thinking about the decisions we've made, you know, in our lives in those years when everything you do seems to have consequence, you know. So. Yes, that that decade of my 30s was yeah. perilous <laughs> in many ways. I mean, I moved to New York in the late 60s when the women's revolution was just getting underway. And it was the air was full of electricity for young women, as we were understanding what feminism was and understanding what sexism was in a way that we had never really articulated or mm -hmm. we hadn't put words to these experiences that we had had that were unpleasant. And, <laughs> and, and we shared them. And so anyway, I decided I wanted to work for Newsweek because the women at Newsweek were suing the management for better jobs because there was this very rigid hierarchy at Newsweek where the men were writers and editors and the women were researchers. They were mm -hmm. like sort of handmaidens to the writers. They uh -huh. would do the research and check the facts mm. and the men would do all their writing. Oh, <laughs> and this is an era when the newspapers listed women's jobs and men's jobs. Yeah. I mean, it was very rigid. Uh -huh. Yeah, I remember very those rigid days. Yeah. Gender divide. And so here we were at Newsweek. We had the same education as the men. We had, in many cases, the same experience in journalism as the men. And yet we weren't allowed to use our skills and be promoted. And it was very frustrating. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it took several years for the magazine to resolve this matter. But by then I was out. I no longer wanted to work in, a, in basically it was journalism where yeah. one person edits, one person writes, one person does research. Yeah, I just, yeah. it wasn't that essentially gratifying. And so I want, decided I wanted to write a book where I could do everything myself. 
So yeah, the, the wonderful thing about all your biographies, including this one, is that you bring history in so beautifully. You do that with O'Keefe and Nevelson. You bring the whole history of the art world, especially New York, into those books so that one can read them almost as a textbook on what the art world was like in New York all through the age of modernism. I mean, um, the people that you bring in, the issues that you bring in, the, the kinds of lives that artists had to lead, uh, what, the, what the world of the galleries was like, that kind of thing, and what was going on at the time. And then in this work, you bring in what's happening in New York in terms of this new wave feminism and what it was like to go to work. And something really jumped out at me that you mentioned uh, how important it was that the pill came into being here and it came into the culture and the effect it had, not just on women, but on men and on the whole culture also. And uh, I wonder yeah. if you could mention that. Well, I can talk about it from a woman's point of view. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, basically for the first time, you could live with a man and decide whether or not to have a child. And it was really a monumental decision. And we really weren't equipped to make it really. Mm -hmm. I mean, our mothers hadn't made those decisions, obviously. <laughs> Maybe some of our female relatives, but not our mothers. Mm -hmm. And the mothers, you know, had very few of the mothers I knew even had jobs. Yeah. Well, that's just it. Pregnancy made it difficult to have a profession, didn't it? And so, raise yeah. children. Children, yeah. Uh -huh. And there was workplace discrimination against mothers. Mm -hmm. So it was hard, you know, hard to get jobs and yeah. all that. But I think we felt free sometimes. We felt very free that we could make these decisions. Uh -huh. And at other times, we felt like overwhelmed by the difficulty of making them. Uh -huh. Well, uh, I get yeah. that sense from the beginning of the book that there's an anxiety here that's, like I say, like walking on a knife edge, that you have decisions to make that are almost thrown at you. Yeah, there were a lot of decisions. And I guess in the old days, you just get pregnant. <laughs> yeah. That ends a lot of decisions you don't have to make anymore. <laughs> yeah, no. Except how to take yeah. care of your baby. Yeah. So did you undergo the sort of research process that you went through with the uh, other biographies? In doing yes. This? Yeah, I did. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, I had this extensive journal and I decided that I would read every word and I would take notes on uh -huh. most of it oh. and I, and on my computer uh -huh. so that I could search them. Uh -huh. I just thought this would be uh -huh. a brilliant idea <laughs> because once I developed themes, I could just use the search uh -huh. function on my computer and, yeah. and go back and find examples of this or that. Yeah. So that was, I've n never did that with the biographies. And then the letters, I opened letters and read letters uh -huh. and transcribed letters. Yeah. I had saved letters from every boyfriend. Uh -huh. <laughs> And husband. <laughs> yeah. Those must have been painful sometimes. They were. Maybe not, yeah. No, they, sometimes they were. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We live in a world where we can self-archive like this, you know, so you wonder what the future is for most. I know. I, there are going to be fewer biographies written. Yeah. Unless there's somehow people have kept journals. And, yeah. Because there are no letters. No, lots of photographs, though. On people's a lot iPhones. of photographs. <laughs> So if everyone can self-archive, almost anyone can self-publish. And our friend Sean McCarthy, who's actually a publisher, he self-published a really wonderful little memoir that he didn't want to come talk about it on the show, unfortunately, uh, out of modesty, I think, uh, if you know Sean. And so I wonder, is autobiography something you would recommend as a useful thing for most people to do? Well... I would think it would be dangerous to recommend everybody do it uh -huh. because not everybody is equipped or uh -huh. ready to examine the past closely. I mean, uh -huh. some people might have regrets uh, that they just don't want to deal with. Some people may have other reasons. I've heard mothers say they don't want to write memoirs because they don't want their children to know uh -huh. what really uh -huh. happened. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there are reasons that it might be perilous for some people to do that. Well, that's that. what I mean. There's part of us that likes to stay mysterious for, for various reasons, you know. So Yeah, yeah hidden to ourselves as well as to others. Yeah. Uh -huh. Now, I don't recommend it. I mean, I think it's probably better to deal with truth, but it could be very, very distressing for some yeah. people. So did you research what was going on at the time? I went back to Providence several times. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That seemed very important. And to go to the libraries there and to 
try to remember because of course, as I said, I didn't have journals from the first 20 years of my life. So I was mm -hmm. trying to stimulate my memory mm -hmm. about my life, my early life there, yeah. as well as my work life. Because my first job after college was working for the Providence Journal. And I wanted to remember well, you give a, such a nice sense of what the places that you were living in were like, both Providence and then New York City and then Long Island and then finally Sharon. It's really a part of who you are, you know, the way that backgrounds that you fill out for your other biographies are who Nevelson and O'Keefe are. I mean, they have a lot to do with who they are. Well, I think where you live is influences you uh -huh. very profoundly. Yeah. It seems to provide a lot of the color in the book. Yeah, well, I think it's important to ground the book in uh -huh. uh, in description and not just be about ideas. Yeah, you don't have whatever a fiction writer has where you can make that stuff up. But on the other hand, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> but you do have reality. Thinking about the title of your George O'Keefe book, Portrait of an Artist, you are essentially sort of painting a world here around yourself that you actually live so that the reader has access to that, I guess. So. Yeah, well, I want to make it as vivid as I could. Well, it's very vivid, and you've obviously been influenced by writers who know how to tell a colorful story. And the other big influence in my life was artists. From a very young age, when I first took art lessons, maybe it seven or eight years old and I took these lessons in a very bohemian atmosphere this is in Providence in the 50s uh -huh. and I had never I didn't know any beatniks yeah. <laughs> but you you did have an uncle who was an artist and, but then, and then it was also a, my stepfather had a brother who uh -huh. was a very passionate and gifted artist uh, I just went out and bought all his books we didn't have them in the art library here. oh so, I'm yeah. so glad you did he's really a wonderful artist yeah, yeah. but he was just like a free spirit mm -hmm. and it was so unlike every other member of the family mm -hmm. and so I always had these other models of mm -hmm. the other ways to live and to be independent and to be creative and to be joyful mm. and so when things were bad I had this other knowledge and I could try to work towards changing my own life. And then I married an artist. Mm -hmm. Finally, yes, yeah. <laughs> Finally. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and this Sean McCarthy, who you mentioned, introduced uh -huh. us. <laughs> oh, he did. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So, great yeah. story. So. I find as I get older, looking back on my own upbringing, which is very working class in Detroit, that you can bracket things as you get older in a way and come to understand them almost in a sociological way. You can distance yeah. yourself from them so that you're not as overwhelmed by things like class, which is you know yeah. important when you're young, but it becomes less important as you get older. And then it becomes interesting, actually. You know, yeah, so, it's like yeah. an artifact. Well, I mean, the yeah. whole world I came from is like an artifact. artifact it, yeah. it barely exists. Yeah. <laughs> anymore the old wasp establishment yeah i mean when i was back in providence on one of my research trips i walked by this very imposing bank building in downtown providence where my uncle some several of my uncles had worked it's this marble huge marble structure and i noticed these kids walking in and out with portfolios under their arms. And I asked somebody, well, what are these kids doing in the bank? Oh. This is, the Rhode Island School of Design has bought the bank. Mm -hmm. It's now an art it's, library. It's a beautiful art library, you know, uh, <laughs> crown jewel of art libraries, yeah, so. So, I mean, uh, Providence is changing, yeah. <laughs> has changed. Yeah, yeah. So besides your biographies, two classic biographies, and now this, I think, classic autobiography, in case we've inspired anyone out there to read the complete Lori Lyle, uh, you have other books, don't you? One on gardening and the other one, A History of Your School in Middletown? Yes. The gardening book was written for several reasons, for pure pleasure. But also, I've, I had spent so much time gardening instead of writing, and I felt sort of guilty about it. So I thought, well, if I write a book about gardening, then I can regard all that time as research. <laughs> and also I dedicated it to my mother. It was just something that was very important to do. Yeah. Well, it's a perfect subject for a book and that you researched gardening books when you wrote that, didn't you? Oh, yeah. And it fits right into the genre. I mean, it is a kind of genre. Well, I wanted to know what had taken me over. I mean, when I moved to the country, I suddenly I was obsessed yeah. by this need to plant a garden and uh, 
and I, what is this? <laughs> what is this instinct? Yeah. <laughs> Do I have really have free will or don't I? Mm-hmm. And so it was also to answer that, that question. Did it provide a connection then to your mother who was a gardener, wasn't she? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was a lovely book to write and four tenths of an acre, uh-huh. which is the size of the plot of land that my house is on, including the house. So the garden is not big, but I managed to write a book about it. <laughs> yeah. And then what about your Westover book? Well, I wanted to write about the school. It was really a very unusual, interesting school. And of course, since I went there as a teenager, it had a huge impact on me. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to revisit that time. And one of the reasons I wanted to revisit that time was because it was at that school that I decided to become a writer. Mm-hmm. I'd had a wonderful teacher who taught creative writing and she really taught us how to be writers. Mm-hmm. And it was what set me on this, my path as a writer. It isn't, however, a memoir, though. It's a history of the school. Yes. So did you have to do research then for that? I assume you did. Um, oh, yes, yeah. I did. Yeah. 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 And I, but I did write a long personal essay uh-huh. called My Westover, uh-huh. which introduces the book. So there was memoir material in yeah. it. So you were wearing the hat of an historian there. Yeah, well, what you do as a biographer to some extent, too. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, of course. And then uh, another book I don't want to forget is your book Without Child, where the research must have been a different kind of research in that it's a sociological book to some extent, yes? Yes. I spent many hours reading sociology. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, you did? <laughs> okay, yeah. And then I decided, after the prodding of an editor, to write more about my own experience which was really a struggle, a long struggle in my 30s between being a writer and being a mother. I really, I really wanted to do both, but I couldn't figure out how I could do both at the same time. And I never did. I never did. No, no. <laughs> I started to write the O'Keefe book when I was 34. And when I finished it, I was 37. And I no longer wanted to be in the marriage that I yeah. was in. So, um, you make it quite clear how demanding writing is. I mean, uh, yeah. uh, it isn't just having a job. So, And then this book, you read other autobiographies, didn't you? I mean, you read memoirs and for, you did that kind of For word research. for word? Yeah, for word yeah. for word, yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. Oh, I've been reading them all my life. Uh-huh. And I tried to remember which ones had been most important and why. And so I did reread certain ones. Uh-huh. I read Philip Roth's book. The uh-huh. facts. I thought that would be uh-huh. really interesting. Uh-huh. And uh, he was also a neighbor. Oh, was he? I was going to say he lives in this area somewhere, he doesn't lives, he? So, yeah. yeah, he, he lived in Warren. He had a house he in did. Warren, uh-huh. yeah. just like two villages away. And I did run into him once in a store in the village between our two villages. And um, he gave me this penetrating gaze (laughs) that I I interpreted as a warning (laughs) and I never did introduce myself or anything like that or let let him introduce himself (laughs) but the fact that he was such a prolific writer and lived nearby in a lifestyle I suppose that was in some regards similar Uh um, has always been a presence Mm -hmm. in my life here in Sharon and particularly when he wrote things or revealed things about his lifestyle uh-huh. hopefully so, you'll be the same thing for budding writers out there well i don't know i mean he's he, he's a so, giant and yeah. he's written so many books so many wonderful books yeah well you have time ahead here so uh, last question and <laughs> so so do you have any ideas about how you will exercise this actually really quite astonishing talent you have for putting thoughts into words in some future project and maybe even jump genres and try poetry or a series of essays a la your fellow New Englander, Ralph Waldo Emerson, or even you mentioned in the book that you were entertaining another biography of Neith Boyce and Hutchins Hapgood, you know, maybe a play or a screenplay. I mean, that would make a a wonderful movie, the life of Neith Boyce, Hutchins Hapgood, and, uh, you know, with the background of the Provincetown. Well, that was an abandoned book idea. Uh-huh. Abandoned yeah. biography idea for several reasons. I think I'll leave it abandoned. <laughs> okay. You did research it. You did research. Though. I researched yes, yeah. it 
in great depth. Uh-huh. And well, I see a screenplay here at least. Uh-huh. Well, you know, they were playwrights. Yes, as well. yeah, and exactly. They did, yeah, there were some short one-act plays that they produced about uh-huh. their relationship. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I think that's been they've been done. Done it themselves. Yeah. But I mean, that's the only major book that I really wanted to do that uh-huh. I didn't do. Yeah. And I wanted to do it for a long time. As much, it was about them, but also the era they lived in, that whole uh, uh-huh. cultural explosion around right prior to World War One, and that was located in Greenwich Village. Just an explosion of ideas, political ideas, artistic ideas. Yeah, it seems it would be perfect for you the way you capture a time and a milieu of people that you write about, you know, so. I'm not going to write any more books, any long <laughs> books. And I... No. Philip Roth decided at the same age that he was not going to write any more novels. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> yeah. so that gives me the permission to make the same decision. I'm going to write short things. Uh-huh. I like to write essays. Essays, okay, I perfect. I like to write book reviews. Uh-huh. I will continue to write letters to the editor. <laughs> <laughs> I have a blog. Uh-huh. I have a newsletter. So I'm doing a little bit online. So if someone wanted to read your blog, is it Laurie Lyle? It's from my website, laurielyle.com. LaurieLyle.com, okay. Jottings. Uh-huh. Ah, okay. And that's how it can be found. found. Okay, sounds great. So I look forward to a book of essays then uh, next time. <laughs> next time. Um, well, I'm, I, I love the essay form. I've loved it for a long time. And... Um, I really am looking forward to falling into that again. That is a formidable genre. And if you're going to research it the way you research biographies or garden books, you've got a lot of reading to do, you know. I know. A lot of great essayists, so. I know. (laughs) Well, you can't think too much about the greats. You just have to think about what you want to do yourself. Yeah, sounds great. So. So I really would like to thank you, Lori, for coming on the show for the third time now, anticipating the fourth time with your book of essays coming sometime, (laughs) to talk about Word for Word, A Writer's Life, just published yesterday by Artemis Editions and available on Amazon, among other places. So thanks for coming and talking about your book. You're very welcome.